This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Quocast. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, you can. You can email quocast at outlook.com. That's quocast at outlook.com. You can tweet at the Quocast on Twitter or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Quocast. Don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider and um, check out video versions and other bits and pieces on YouTube as well. On this podcast, um, I talk to the legend known as Baz Barry of Predator and Baz Barry's Spare Parts. I caught up with him via WhatsApp after seeing him at the convention late last year. I saw you recently at the convention um, playing with Basbury's Spare Parts. We didn't meet, but uh, I saw you playing. Um, how was the convention for you? I really loved it. And I obviously, I, I didn't go back to playing with John when I was after I'd sort of recovered from my illness, which I expected to. And there was a point where I was really bothered about that. And then there was a point where I, I wasn't bothered about that. And so the opportunity of playing, you know, almost with my band, but with Jay, you know, who's phenomenal. I've got a clip of him. We used to invite him up to jam with us when he was about 10. <laughs> and, and he, it was better than us then, you know, and he's sort of phenomenal now. So I think, so how do I put this? So in a way... I don't have to answer to anybody in terms of what I want to do in terms of crow numbers. I can just do exactly what I want. And that that's sort of really quite fulfilling and really satisfying. I sort of get to play the songs that I really like. I'm not fussed about all the playing all the hits. I never have. So in a way that was, it was a sort of real triumph to do all those numbers that sort of never get done and to sort of do them with, these fantastic people that I play with you know I'm so easily the worst player in any group of people I ever play with so I'm getting as much out of it as the audience because it's like wow this is fantastic these guys are brilliant you know and I sort of try and fumble my way through a few chords and I think the only sort of the regret is that you couldn't go out and do it you know in a pub or a club as playing a load of quo numbers because they're not quo numbers that anybody recognizes almost you know not even some quo fans were like what is this you know that that sort of appeals to me that slightly outside the box thing i mean i'd love to play it every week almost then i could get really good learn all the lyrics properly you know i've got all the chords written down and all the lyrics just because it's i think we had we had two rehearsals for that gig. We'd played some of the numbers before about three years ago. And then Jay came down and it, so it was, he drove down from Glasgow to rehearse and Jack wasn't there. It was only Steve and I, you know, in this room. And then we, Jack lives in Norwich and then we all congregated in Norwich for a, like a final rehearsal. But it was only like a three-hour rehearsal because Jay had to start sort of driving back. So, you know, that performance 
with the sort of, you know, like one and a half rehearsals in three years and songs that we'd never played before, you know, it was sort of quite phenomenal. I was really uh, sort of proud of who I played with and I'm really thrilled that most people seem to really enjoy it. It was a bit different and that was the plan. So I'm, you know, really lucky to play with these people, really. And, you know, and still be sort of part of this quo scene, you know, sort of a little bit on the outside these days, really. But it's still nice to be thought of and welcomed and people still want to chat to you and have their photo taken with you. It is quite humbling. I'm I'm really lucky. So, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Absolutely. As did I. Um, your set was described, I think, as a connoisseur quo set because it was sort of that that sixties and uh, and mid seventy, early to mid seventies thing going on. To go right back to it, one of the things I do on the podcast is ask you how you got into status quo bats. Right. Okay. So I am actually. I I suppose. So I, I wasn't allowed records as a kid. My mum thought they were a terrible waste of money. So I grew up on my mum and dad's records. So my mum was into early sort of cliff. So I really love early cliff. And my dad actually had really, really terrible hearing. He had 60%, 40% hearing. And so he always had to wear hearing aids. And I don't know how he heard anything at all, really, to be honest. And it was a classic example of my dad going to the doctor and saying, oh, I've got a bad ear. And the doctor saying, oh, oh yeah, you have. And he said, no, no, that's my good ear. This is my bad ear. So so, so my dad sort of liked Shirley Bassey. So I, I sort of I brought up all, on all these 60s records. And so I used to listen to the radio and, you know, try and sort of, remember every tiny moment so i mean the reason i have long hair is because i saw uh the move doing fire brigade on the tv it must have been a black and white clip and i didn't know it was uh roy wood but you know he he had i thought he had long hair and it's like that's the reason i've got long hair it's because of of roy wood and then because you don't have an older brother you don't get introduced to stuff you have to find it out for yourself which makes you sort of quite a late starter. So I was I was born in 1960, so all that glam rock, you know, when I was 12 or 13, you know, it's just phenomenal. You know, I still love it all now, but I was a massive Bolan fan, and I still am. He's still my main man. He's the one I still listen to. And then I think the first single I ever bought, I think I was on holiday and I saw... Uh, Hawkwind do Silver Machine, and that was that was just really phenomenal. And I think that was the first single I ever bought. And and then I think I think I bought Rain. Uh, I think I sent my sister to go and buy it because I was too shy to go into the record shop. Then I really really loved that. And then I bought On the Level, and that was it. Um, I'd sort of discovered it really but you know sort of way too late um mick you know who was my sort of predator stable mate for years and years and years he, he was at um boarding school and they sort of got into all that stuff much earlier and i sort of i've always envied people that a bit really um so but before that and almost the key 
the key thing was when I was at junior school, there were three girls having acoustic guitar lessons. So I was in Thorley, uh, which is near Bishop Stortford. And I was a really shy child. And there were three girls and they used to have acoustic guitar lessons at the big school. And I was desperate my whole life. I wanted guitar lessons, but I was just too shy. And they used to, Mary Smith was the, she was the main guitarist. And they sort of used to play like Yellow Bird. The, you know, do, 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 do. So Mary Smith would play the lead. And then I think it was Jackie Parker who could just about play drum, 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 the quick change chords. And then the other girl who couldn't really change chords, she just used to hammer the back of her a guitar like bongos. Um, but there was a guy, and I don't remember his name, but it's it absolutely is a total pivotal moment in my life. Um, I was hanging about listening to them, desperate to have a go or even hold a guitar. And Mary Smith said to this student teacher, and I can't remember his name, she said, can you play anything, sir? And he said, the only thing I can play is this. And I, it is still burning in my mind. He grabbed this uh, acoustic guitar, he put one foot on the desk and he like, put it on his knee and he made that kind of that kind of barcode shape and he went and it was like oh oh my god and i sort of summed up the coach to ask him and he showed me a couple of times but it was like it was impossible i couldn't remember how to do it and and that and so that must have been about 67 68 probably possibly 69 but that that was the pivotal moment it's like i had to play that style of guitar so that was then, but it took me, it took me um, till I was sixteen to to actually buy an electric guitar. So I was, yeah, I was into Quo. So I'd I'd gone from Boland to sort of riding schoolboy motocross to getting back into music, and yeah, the single Rain, which is still a fantastic, fantastic song. And then I bought on the level. Um, and then I went from there. So, yeah, and I, and I just, I really loved it. And then I suppose I got Blue For You. And then when I left school, I bumped into a mate who I knew at school, but we weren't really mates, but we became mates after school. And that was Steve Coppock, the original uh, Predator bass player. And he was a printing apprentice and he was on about three times what I was. I was on 36p an hour. And so we used to go into town and buy all these Quo records and just, God, we absolutely adored them. It was amazing. So, yeah, that's how I got into Quo a bit later than a few other people. I think the first time we saw them was the Daily Mirror Rock and Pop Awards at Bingley Hall. Um, and my mum, <laughs> my mum made me wear a, jacket because you didn't want me to look scruffy <laughs> so you know, just about 17 and so you know we went up there and there's all these sort of denim cad hairy northerners you know setting light things <laughs> it was yeah it was, yeah that was phenomenal and i yeah i really i really loved them really absolutely obsessed just thought it was everything i used to sort of try and iron my hair straight to be a bit more like francis you know all that stuff you do when you're sort of naive because the other thing as well is that you know the 70s you know they were naive 
you know, we didn't know anything about anything, you know, then. I mean, you couldn't work out the songs. You had to try and slow the records down to try and work out lyrics. I remember we were trying to work out the lyrics to Route 66. It's just impossible. And when you look at the original lyrics compared to what you were trying to sing, it's like, how did I get to that from that? But, you know, that's how it was at the time. We're all like that. I mean, now I want to learn how to play anything. I go on YouTube and there's normally some 14-year-old who does it 10 times better than I ever could. Everybody knows everything now. But you didn't know it then. We didn't even have guitar tuners. So, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. As you may know, with the podcast, I do ask for questions beforehand, and I've got a few that I would like to shoot your way. Um, Michael asked me when you were going to get a, a haircut and a shave. Well, actually, basically, the reason there's two reasons I've, I've got a beard. One is um, when I was when I was ill, I was diagnosed with esophageal cancer sort of six years ago, which is why I had to bail from John. And that's an awful one to try and get through. But I was really lucky and obviously got brilliant support, got through it. But so I've had a couple of crowns. I'm sort of the generation that's got really bad teeth. Uh, none of my children have ever had a fill-in. But I've got um, a couple uh, missing, which I'm really self-conscious of. And also when I sort of sort of reformed a sort of new lineup of Predator, I... I didn't want to look like I did when I was with John almost. It was like a like a weird sort of personal reinvention. I had to not disassociate myself, um, but it was like it was a new beginning. And I never used to really have a beard with John because I suppose I just didn't. So, uh, and, you know, trying to get through a cancer treatment, it's like the last thing you're worried about is anything else is just a hour by hour day by day thing so that was it and i did actually lose most of my hair when i was on chemo so that's gradually grown back it grew black grew back uh brown and really coarse but now it's luckily it's gone gray again so yeah when i sort of get a couple of my teeth fixed <laughs> i will shave my beard off just to see what i look like i'm really bored with it as well at the moment so yeah, one day I'd never, I don't intend on ever having my sort of hair cut short. I just, that's not, well, I don't, I, wouldn't, I don't even, I've had long hair so long. I don't even think about it. I wouldn't even describe myself as having long hair. I just don't think about it. But having said that, when the new growth started coming through, I cut what was left of the old growth growth off and it was kind of shoulder length it was sort of like a lenony sort of length and i i actually really really liked that because it was just i looked so different from how i'd looked for sort of 45 years or whatever however old i am so i started growing my hair when i was about 15 but i'm just not brave enough to sort of cut it short again really so i it's not something i ever think about but yeah i am bored with my beard and as soon as i can get my teeth sorted i will you know, that's romantic. I will shave it off because, I'm yeah, I look like Cat Weasel's dad. So, yes, at the point I will. I'm unlikely to cut my hair off, but I will get rid of my beard when I There you go. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Dan wants to know whether you've got any sort of memories of playing with John. Yeah, a hundred. I, I really, really love 
playing with John and uh, I consider it a sort of massive uh, privilege. I think that I was really proud of sort of what we did with John as well. I think at the time he sort of, John Coglum's quo, and before we sort of joined it, the wheels were starting to come off. You know, I realised that everything actually has a finite life and he's, yeah, I mean, we had the odd Mad Turk moments, but actually he's really kind and he's he's really funny and he's a fantastic player and a couple of sort of real Nirvana moments. Uh, when we first got together, we were just going to go out as the John Coglan band and just play Quo album material because I've never been interested in playing the singles. That doesn't interest me. It's album tracks that I really like. And we got introduced by a friend and we, I think we were in Carterton Football Club Hall or something. It was, you know, it was like a hall. It was, you know, a tatty old sort of place. And we obviously, you know, he's actually quite shy and, and we didn't really, we'd, we'd only met him once in a pub and it was like, you know, this is massive for, for Mick and I, you know, Mick and I have been obsessed with Quo for forever, and that's how we met. So we we thought, oh, what should we play? And nobody really knew. And it's like, let's do in my chair. It's really quite gentle. And we we started playing it, and we were just Mick and I. We were just grinning from ear to ear, and we finished it. And and it was at that point that I realised that the quo that I really liked was all about the drums. Once you took John away for me, it wasn't quo anymore. And I realized that where I thought I'd been listening to guitarists my whole life, I realized actually I'd been listening to drummers my whole life. And it was John that made quo that era of quo. So fantastic. The minute he'd gone, something was, was lost for me, never sort of returned. And I sort of realised, you know, Jimmy Page, you know, he felt that Zeppelin couldn't go on without Bonham. And so I, I understand, I understand that, you know, just how good Don Powell was and just how God good Mick Tucker was. You know, these people were like phenomenal. They were so part of the band. You don't seem to get that in the same way now where everyone is sort of, been to drum school or guitar school everybody's trained and so you kind of lose that you know you listen to black sabbath without um bill ward i mean bill ward is phenomenal and so i realized that i'm a massive fan of the pink fairies twink and russell hunter you know and bill legend from boland these this is these these songs are fantastic but the drums on all of them are just glorious and and you know john's playing that was it it's like oh my word you know i thought there's me you know ironing my hair when i was a teenager i didn't for very long because i did realize quite early on that there already was a francis and he was very good at it and i didn't want to be francis but I could be influenced by Francis. You know, I'd, I had a Urco Flex 50 Plectrum. That's what Francis used. And I play a Telecaster because that, even though I didn't really like them, that's what Francis was playing on the front of the live EP. You know, all these things that 
I think there's a picture on sort of Mark Kelly where he's sort of wearing basey boots. It's like, oh, so I had those, you know, all that stuff. And actually, and, you know, this white Telecaster business and green Telecaster business, I mean, Mick's never owned a Telecaster. It's like that wasn't important. The the secret ingredient to sounding like Quo was to have John on the drums. That's really sort of quite phenomenal. And it all hinges on that for me. That's my own personal view, obviously. Um, so it's, yeah, been brilliant. We've had uh, loads of really nice times. <laughs> There's probably thousands of stories. One that was really weird. Oh, where were we playing? Oh, we turned up in a crew bus. Oh, were we in France? And it was John Coglan's quo, and it wasn't a very big gig. And the door slid open, and a bloke looked in, and he saw John. He went, oh, hello, John. You know, he said, where's Francis? <laughs> you know, I said, oh, yeah, Francis. <laughs> Francis in a little van, you know, all crammed in the back. Oh, you know, yeah, no, it, it, it's weird. But, yeah, no, he was awesome. I love him, and I, I've been speaking to him recently, and I hope to get him up and, and we're going to do a couple of numbers, you know, in Glasgow, which will be uh, really nice, fantastic. Yeah, I loved playing with him. You know, he was phenomenal. You know, I've always said he's the heartbeat of Quo. It's massively important, you know, and he was important to Quo. Yeah, awesome. Well, definitely so. I'm, I'm so glad that uh, he got to reunite with the rest of the guys in 2013-14. In um, because I think then you realised what a difference it made. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you think, you know, because so we're all getting on a bit. I mean, John is, what is he, 74, is he now? It's like, well, I'm 63. So it's hard to sort of, in some, it's hard to manage people's expectations, really. I think, especially with drums, I think it's hard, as long as you've got your ears and you're not suffering too much from rheumatism, you can sort of get away with it, really. Yeah, no, I'm really, yeah, I'm really pleased. No, no, I'm, and I took my youngest son, Albert, to see him. And it's like, this is, and you sort of got that excitement. But the really, really weird thing is that, because they're all using in-ear monitors, I think that makes you really detached from an audience. And as they announced they were coming on, the cheer was so loud. I think, was it Hammersmith Odin? I think it was. Like the it the the gig it, the volume inside the gig the sound almost compressed where it was so loud that the joy and the it was it, it almost the sound almost became a physical thing. <laughs> yes, I remember. It really, John was sort of wearing in ears that like everybody does, and he was like, "Oh, how did it go?" And it's like, "What? It was just you know you could you could all the air was almost solid. You could almost." sort of squeeze it through your hands that atmosphere was there was so much love and yet you got this modern in-ear monitoring and it was like it completely detached you said oh, i don't really know how it went you know and it's like oh that's what a waste that was you know but yeah, i'm glad i was there i'm glad that i'm glad they did it i'm sort of glad for alan as well and it's because it's easy to overlook alan's contribution to the era that I sort of really loved when you look at, you know, that no, 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 those songs were often, you know, Francis and Bob, but all the riff based stuff, you know, don't think it matters. You know, you got back what you got a year unspoken words 
um, they're Alan. You know, those really great riff songs were Alan, you know, Drifting Away. Yeah, it's yeah, great. Yeah, it was really great. People did get the Yeah, because, I mean, there's, it's like, it's really hard. There's two generations of Quo fans, isn't it, that are completely removed. I mean, you know, Rhino's been in the band longer than Alan ever was. It's hard to relate the timeline, you know, because I, I probably, I didn't stop listening to Quo by Can't Stand the Heat album, but I was certainly looking at them and going, what is this? I can't relate to this at all. You know, there was a golden moment for me, which I've always stuck with, to be fair. Yeah. Hence why with spare parts, you sort of go up to 75 and then stop, which, you know, is is good because a lot of the other bands will play the hits and the stuff that they did later on. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sort of really out of touch. I've sort of, I've really just done my own thing. So, and I, yeah, because I mean, you know, heavy traffic, that's like an era of Francis, that's an era of Quo that I've been invited to see occasionally, but yeah, that's, that's a, a whole new thing. And, you know, sort of Rhino plays in the style of Rhino, sort of not Alan, you know, it's like, oh my word, it, you know, I sort of left it sort of not far behind, but it's, it's sort of grown it's so vast that whole quo thing there's so many interpretations you know there's quite a few different lineups now i suppose at some point you're gonna get a sort of a richie malone rhythm guitarist in a band aren't you and it's like you know i sort of can't knock that um because ultimately you've got to be out there trying to play guitar and that's becomes more and more difficult in this age you just got to get out there and play so you know, I remember the joy of sort of trying to work out a quo number and play it. And actually, I just encourage everybody to do that, you know. I'm certainly picking up the guitar again and trying to play some of that stuff because, as you say, it's it, there's a wide variety of different styles in there, different eras. And I think what um, what I picked up from the convention was that there is a younger generation of quo fans who are going to pick it up. It's not going to die out. No, and that that is... That's not ever something you could foresee. You know, you think it's just, it's sort of your music or, you know, your era of music and and, and that's it. Um, yeah, that it is. It's like, yeah, no, it's like you've got sort of grandkids that are Quo fans. It's like, what? <laughs> How does that work? It is hard to, yeah, let's say that timeline, it's... You know, it's been so long since 74 or 77 and so much has happened and so many people have sort of got into it. You know, I, I, want, I think, I think, because, you know, you've got, 70, you know, 76, 77 came in all the punk rock things. So you've got this sort of big melting pot, which Predator was sort of a bit like. So you've got a sort of, obviously, Steve and I had a massive Quo influence, but the original guitarist, uh, John Benham, he was he was only about six months older than me, but he was he was sort of massive, massive influence. And obviously, I never realised it at the time. But you know, he listened to all sorts of stuff from Hillies to Zeppelin to Fairies, you know, and that really expanded my interest in the possibilities of music. 
I was going to ask you about Predator because you're booked to play at the uh, the Scottish Convention uh, in, yeah. in two bands again. I mean, number one, how do you um, maintain the energy to play in two bands? And number two, uh, what can we expect from a Predator set? Because you've released three albums over the last sort of 20 years. What can we expect? I don't know yet. I haven't decided uh, what to do. I mean, obviously, the the predator of today is different to the predator of Mina in your garden, but the predator of today is more like the original predator, and it's a broader thing. You just go for it and see what happens. So, uh, yeah, I don't know yet. Maybe try, try a couple of new numbers. I haven't really thought that far ahead. It's just nice to have a gig. It's obviously difficult because we only do one or two sort of Predator gigs a year, so it's quite, you don't have that rolling, the sort of rolling, the constant, or not constant, the uh, the regular rehearsals where you're trying stuff out. I mean, I really want to get another album sorted, but I just, it just hasn't worked out. It's been really difficult few last three years for bands especially difficult for bands playing original music. I mean, I just got a gig booked in Holland in May at the Cross Guitars Festival, and it's an absolute nightmare trying to sort out uh, carnets and, you know, get just getting a band over, you know, for one gig. You know, this Brexit business has just been horrendous. So... Um, yeah, no, I don't know what I'm going to do about Predator yet, but I am looking forward to it. I love being in the same room as those guys. You never know what's going to happen, which is a joy. And I'm, I always look forward to playing with Jay, and I, I really like those Quo numbers. I don't know if we'll try a couple of different ones. It's a bit too far ahead. I'm thinking about Holland at the moment, so I'll have to get my arse into gear a bit nearer the time. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to try and get you back on the podcast to talk about um, that in more detail because, like you say, um, you, you're thinking you're thinking of the next thing. Yeah, I I think that you you do, and in it's almost like you try and write something that you think is going to be okay, but actually it's other people that give it a meaning or a value almost. You can't second guess what people are going to like. You know, I know that an interview with Francis was saying, oh, he, he always sort of really liked Claudie or, you know, and, and you sort of, for a while I thought, oh, you're you taking the piss. You know, it's like, oh my God, it's like, you know, you've written down, down and, you know, and sort of don't waste my time. And, you know, you played this awesome solo on a uh, little lady and you just, just, and and blue-eyed lady and it's like oh my word all this oh and but you're sort of going for claudie and it's <laughs> like so it's a the songs of mine that i've sort of written are, are you know aren't necessarily the songs that people uh really like you just can't you can't second guess it but also you just have to be you know, really sort of humbled that, you know, people listen to them at all, even, you know, let alone sort of really like them. You know, people put their, people put their, their own value, you know, they invest their own emotions into these songs, however 
it sort of touches them. And actually, it's not for me to say. It's like, yeah, some of them I like, some of them I absolutely can't stand. You know, and some of them I wrote when I was 17. It's like, or 18. It's like, I'm, somebody asked for the lyrics to need your love. He couldn't make them out. It's like, oh, is my singing that bad? And I, I had to sort of listen back to make sure I wasn't just making up what I thought they were. And it's like, they're, you know, it's incredibly unremarkable. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm 63. I wrote that when I was 18 or, you know, it's like it can't have any relevance or, you know, over the top, you know, some of the lyrics. I try really hard but some of the lines are like, oh, that's terrible. But, you know, having said that, there are some really terrible lyrics in some really amazing songs, which I would put up with. You know, I think Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights, she says, I pine a lot, I find the lot quite hard without you. Something's like, that's terrible. How can you i'll do no not good enough it's so i am a bit like that i really like my lyrics to work but you know i can't make any excuses for stuff that was written you know 50 years ago or whatever it was i just have to mumble the words i don't like when i'm singing them live <laughs> or you know, just block them out of my mind it is yeah it's like oh my god yeah, it's but I you know I have been around quite a long time, you know, not achieving very much really, but it still has been fulfilling because I've sort of I've done what I've wanted to do and that you know, I sort of oh, having sort of faith in my not just myself, but actually the faith in the people that I play with. I think that's the key. I always know it's going to be fantastic because not because of me, but because of who I get to play with, you know, I have tremendous faith in those people and they are, I've been really lucky. Everyone I've played with has been utterly brilliant. So, you know, if there's sort of been success, I put it down to the fact that I've been really lucky that awesome players have wanted to play with me. If that makes sense. It does. That's a very humble thought, though, because I think you, you're almost um, downplaying your your role in a lot of things, and I can understand why. It's really interesting because, um, for me, you, you said earlier about how people kind of put their own meaning onto the music, and for, for me, about 10 years ago, I went through a, a breakup, and I think I listened to Mean back-to-back -back several times. <laughs> because for some reason it just it, it like the the musicality of it and the lyrics and everything just kind of uh, met with what I was uh thinking and feeling at the time and it's you know it's amazing how music can can do that can just kind of fit that I think so because sometimes you don't think about the stuff you do uh, in, intentionally but I always thought that the Francis um, you know the Rossi Young lyrical relationship was pretty awesome you always, you always put these songs down to Francis but actually lyrically a lot of the time they're down to Bob Young and I always liked the way they could say something really simple and it sounded really ordinary but it said so much 
that was so different to you know uh, Mark Boland's you know drivel that came out you know <laughs> my, my my toad road licked a wheel like a saber it's like I don't do that stuff that Boland did uh, but Francis you know it's like yeah, I found her in a nowhere and I lost her or I saw the light or railroad. You know, these are just absolutely, they're just sort of glorious. They're really ordinary, but you can just relate to almost every line. Every line is almost sublime, certainly up to sort of, uh, certainly up to blue for you. I'm going to go for that, you know. And so there is a not a conscious effort it's a it's a semi-conscious effort but there's something really beautiful in those lyrics that that where you can say something quite ordinary along with the melody and the guitar and it it just it's just so perfect so i i understand that and i would say that on a personal level probably the lyrics to in your garden the track in your garden it's like Yes, I feel I've really done that. Every line is just like something maybe Francis would have done or Bob Young would have done. And if I'd have heard it, I'd have gone, oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, no, I, I sort of get that. I've, and I always sort of tried to do that. I, I'm not, a, I don't have a futuristic lyrical sense, you know, so my lyrical sense would be from Francis and Bob, probably if I think about, I thought about that sort of deeply but thinking about that now yeah there is that kind of ordinariness is just brilliant because it's it's so hard i think to do as well they've done it all so well for so so long it's hard to find a little quo type song that doesn't sound like oh that's big fat i've just rewritten big fat mama or i've just rewritten that's really difficult, and I think that is why there's never been a room for another boogie band in real terms. They've been so good for so long. There's no, there no chance. You know, Predator wasn't like, you know, it's like I think we might be one up from the sort of pub league, but there isn't that love for a another band doing that, and they did it all so well. It's like almost from sort of 71 to sort of, I'm going to say up to blue for you. It's, it's hard to find a duff track on a quo album apart from fine, fine, fine. I'm going to stick my neck out there and go, I know Francis is into country music, but I really hate that song, but I know every line and I can still hum the, the tune. Cause that you have to sit through it in order to get the lonely man. You bother to lift off the record. And I think that is why with uh, Whedon House, because that album, because it was, I knew it was going to be different. It wasn't going to be mean and in your garden. And it was a sort of completely new lineup. It sort of had to come out on vinyl. I wanted people to have a relationship with the cardboard. That's why it's got a poster and a booklet because it, all the, I mean, so I think if I'd have bought that out on CD, it's really easy to go, oh, no, what is that, 30 seconds? Oh, no, what? that's no good. And we couldn't do that in our day. So, you know, I remember sort of buying an album for a specific track. and But because you listen to the whole album, you end up 
you know, tracks grow on you that you adore in the end far more than the track you bought the album for. And so I needed to do that with uh, Wicker House, really. I couldn't take the risk that people would just go, oh, that's not mean, it's not in your garden, zip, 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 and not have to, you know, it's like actually if you don't like a track on Wicker House, you have to get up and move the needle. And for the most part, you can't be bothered from <laughs> the time you start of a track that you really hate uh you're onto a track that you don't mind and then they grow on you and you and it, you know when i look back you know um, we don't sort of talk about great songs we talk about great albums and i don't think that you can do that these days it is that that relationship with vinyl it's a long-term thing it's nearly a sort of lifetime thing you know, in actual fact, I've just sold my record deck and most of my vinyl because I realised with all the vinyl I've got, I only play about 10 <laughs> LPs, you know, uh, so that happens. So, yeah, so lyrically, you know, Francis is awesome and, yeah. I think a lot of people would agree with you there on, on many of the points that you raised. Um, I'm going to let you go because I know that you're you're obviously very busy. Um, you've got Holland to plan for. What What's the gig in Holland? Um, Cross Guitars Festival. When we brought out Mean, and we we only brought out Mean, as those songs had existed. And so this is almost like, so it's like before the internet, and didn't even know there were other Quo bands out there. In fact, we got introduced to State of Quo, which was, I think, Mikey, Graham, Paul, and uh, Mark line up. This is years and years ago. We went to see them, and it's like, oh, my word, this is a whole new world. And so we recorded Mean literally because we'd been playing the songs with the lineup then, which was Simon and Glenn and Mick. And we recorded them just because I wanted the songs preserved because I'd just had a son. He was only young, and it's like, so I want to be able to say this, is what I this is what your useless dad tried to do with his life. <laughs> and sort of mean sort of gradually sort of it sort of took off and then out of the blue I think we got a would it have been an email or a phone call or somebody contacted us and said, Well could you come and play in Holland? We're massive fans of this album. And so we didn't know anything. We drove there. It's like never been abroad playing before. You know, we drove there. And uh, like about sort of half eight, nine o'clock, I think, we got to the, or in the afternoon, we got to this crossroads in the north of Holland. And there was like, there's this music cafe, just a lot, a little cafe. And it's like we'd driven hours and hours. And it's like, is this it? This can't be it. Really? Bloody hell, what have we done? And of course... It was the most awesome gig that we've ever played. It's just we've had some fantastic nights there. And people come from far and wide and the Dutch really kind of took on sort of mean. And it was before the days of limited people in or even stopping at any time of night. It's in the middle of nowhere. And it just felt like hundreds and hundreds of people just going absolutely mad were rammed in this place. And uh, so we've been invited back there i don't know if it's the 10th anniversary 15th i don't even know what anniversary it is i, I didn't write that down 
Um, But we played the first one, the first uh, Cross Guitar Festival. We had the honour of headlining that. And so it has a really special place. And gradually over the years, people from the UK sort of turn up there as well. It's just been uh, really mental. So I've got to try and find a way of getting the gear there now. It's with Brexit. Who voted for that? What a nightmare. Where you could just get in a van and go and play. Now it's it's really, really, really difficult. So thank you, everyone, that that uh, voted for that, for whatever you voted for that for. Uh, you've given me a real shitty time trying to get over there. We saw a little bit of that during the convention with Sound of Status. Oh, yeah. Well, that's made me so paranoid. You know, Joachim, I mean, you know, Joachim, he's, you know, he, he's sort of gorgeous. And uh, the year the, the year that we played played it with the new lineup, and I was, didn't really know him. and was chatting to him after the gig, and he was like, oh, and he really loved it. And you know, it was the year uh, Rick had died, and Jochen would come on, and he sort of looked like Rick in sort of seventy three when I, you know, before he had his hair cut short, before all that rocking all over the world and the live thing when it was like hello length, and he's just like. He, he was just fantastic, and it it was it was massive for people. It was almost like Rick lived. It was really really amazing, and yeah, and he, and he couldn't get there. And he'd driven something like thirty hours from Sweden because his flight was cancelled, and they wouldn't let him in. And it's like that's horrific. So people missed out on a a really awesome bloke and a really awesome player and a fantastic band, and ultimately. You know, they're the chances that we get to see people that we've known and admired. These are the gigs where we all sort of say, hello, how are you doing? Fantastic to see you. Keep well. It was an awesome set. You know, we all get to admire each other. And, yeah, we missed out on that. Yeah, that's, and so, yeah, I'm really paranoid now. But I think a carne, in order to get your gear out of the country and back, is something like, 475 quid i think up to 15 grand it's like oh great so you know i'm either gonna have to go out with my guitar in bits and try and smuggle it out under my car like the day of the jack <laughs> you know or borrow everybody's everything i mean how do you perform if you're borrowing somebody's guitar and somebody's amp and you know people always you on your performance not on the fact that you've had to walk there or you know sort of thing it's yeah really difficult so i hope that we rejoin and it's all my, it's, it's all my friends as well it's like every everybody i know you know proper you know pro players and semi-pro players everybody's about to stop it's all right if you're quo you stick another five on the ticket don't you and it's everything's covered and people pay it but for everybody else you know your grandchildren that are in a quo band and want to go and play in France or Holland or Spain and or Germany and have been invited. Where the audience is. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Certainly for for Boogie. I mean, so you know, the Dutch, you know, they listen to rock radio. It is it isn't like here and yes, yeah, that you know, rock bands, rock music is still massive on the continent. In a way but here it's sort of there's more pockets of it really it doesn't feel quite the same you know but yeah they you know really messed it up for everyone apart from the people that can afford it you know it's just the rest of us really so yeah it's difficult so yeah i'm just trying to learn some french <laughs>
I didn't understand. Please let me go through. I'll do anything. I've just got to learn that in French. <laughs> Please look, I'll do anything. How much can I pay? You know, you know, we've had, you know, 30 years of not giving it a thought, you know, all those gigs with John, it's like we either flew out with guitars, you know, or we just drive out in a van or a tour bus. It just went, it was just fantastic. It was just really easy and it allowed you to expand your horizons. It allowed people to book you. You know, it's just been these fantastic experiences that I've had, you know, my love for Europe and all the people I've met, all the French and the Germans and the Dutch. It's like, you know, they're like brothers to me. That's how strong the friendship is. They're all through music, all through being able to just get in a car and go on the tunnel and go. But, you know, now it's like, you know, how much is my friendship worth? Well, it's going to be about 475 quid on top of whatever it was going to cost. Now it's like, oh, yeah, shocking, really terrible. I I could go on and on and I could swear a lot, but I won't. I'd <laughs> keep my- well, I've, I've got a bleeper here, if that, if that helps. Yeah, um- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I really could. Rest assured, even though I haven't sworn, I in my head I'm absolutely furious. So yeah, no, I kind of won't subject anyone who listens to well, I mean, they obviously know what I'm like when I'm on the stage, but you know, yeah, it's like what were you thinking? <laughs> well, well there might be some, Thank you thank you I? so much for being a guest on the on the podcast. Yeah, no, it's been a, a real honor. Thanks for thanks for uh, thinking of me. Uh, um yeah, it is it is really, really great to be part of all of this on whatever level that I am. You know, it is great to be in, in, included and feel included. And I think that's the, that's the key message. It is about being in, inclusive, not exclusive. You know, everybody's welcome. Everybody get up, have a go, do something. You know, this isn't an elitist sport. This is something that everyone should be involved with. Have a go. You never know. And you'll get something out of it. And that's the most important thing. It isn't about fame and fortune. Actually, it's about the people you meet and the songs you play and the gigs that you play. And some of them are awful. Some of them are just absolutely glorious. And you'll get them. <laughs> so that's cool. Yeah, no, any time. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.